Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to see you this morning in our second service in the new space. We're thankful to God for his provision in spite of any challenges that the times may present to us. Because we are weak and we are needy, and nothing good is going to happen right now unless God shows up and does that, let's pray and ask him for his help as we'll now look for his word. Pray with Father in heaven, we come in need and in desperation, yet with confidence, because we know who you are. We know that you're faithful, you're good, you're merciful, and you're gracious to us. You are the great overcomer. And we ask that you would overcome our sin, our burdens, and our distraction. That you would overcome the ways that our hearts rage and the ways that our hearts vacillate. Overcome. Minister to us by your spirit as we look to your word. We pray above all things that Christ would be exalted. We pray that you would be honored. We pray that we would be stirred, and that we would be humble, and that we would be filled with gratitude and love to you. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, as a part of the membership process here at Covenant Baptist Church, we do membership interviews where we ask people after they've taken our membership class to do an interview with one of the pastors of the church. And sometimes for people, this produces some anxiety, a little bit of angst. They're not quite sure what to expect. I, I don't know if they're expecting like spotlights and like cold rooms, concrete floors, metal chairs. I'm not sure. But sometimes people are anxious about membership interviews. What are the pastors going to talk to you? And all we really want to do is get to know you a little bit, get to know your life, get to know what your life was like before you trusted Christ, how you came to know it, and what it's been like since. We want to talk to you about the gospel and how it is that a sinner is reconciled to a holy God. But in spite of any anxiety that people might feel on the front end of these membership interviews, without really any exception that I can think of in the history of our church, they always end up being incredibly encouraging and sweet times. There are several reasons for that. But one of the main reasons that membership interviews are so sweet and encouraging is because what we end up doing is reflecting upon God's grace, his extravagant grace that he has shown to one of his children in bringing them to salvation. Doing that stirs our hearts, and it fills us with gratitude, and at the same time humbles us. God's love and grace toward us, also even, think about this, like when we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead in our sins, God's love and grace toward us then is a testimony to his love and grace toward us now that we are in Christ. If he was merciful and gracious to us then, how much more so now that we are in Christ Jesus? Will he be merciful? And will he be gracious? If you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. We are back in Paul's letter to the Ephesians today. We're going to be looking today at Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 7. Ryan, are we going to have verses on the screen or not? Yeah, great. So if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, don't sweat that. We're going to have the verses to the text up here on the screen behind me. You'll be able to follow along with us that way. Just a high-level question before I even read the text for us. This is always good to ask when you come to any passage of Scripture. Thinking about the intent of the author. What is Paul doing in this section of the letter to the Ephesians? What's he doing? Well, what, what was he writing about last week in the 
verses that we consider from the end of Ephesians chapter 1. He was writing that he was praying for the Ephesian Christians to know three things. I'm praying that you might know, one, the hope to which you've been called. Two, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Three, the immeasurable greatness of God's power to you. He also writes how Christ has been raised, exalted, and seated at the right hand of God, and has been given as head of all things to them, the church. And now, in this section of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is going to expound upon the power and the grace of God toward the Ephesian Christians. That's what he's doing. He's going to expound and extol the grace and the power of God toward the Ephesian Christians and thereby all those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So before we go any further, friends, let's read God's word together, beginning with Ephesians 2 and verse 1. This is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I have a two-part sermon. Part one, part two. We begin with part one, obviously. What we were. Part one, what we were. We're going to look at verses one to three together for just a moment. Put your eyes on the text. Verse one, Paul begins this way. And you, writing to the Ephesian Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. When Paul uses that language of being dead, he is writing of a spiritual reality. He's writing of the fact that they used to walk, they used to live in a certain place. So he's not meaning they were physically dead, that's clear. But there's a kind of spiritual death that characterized the Ephesian Christians. Friends, where there is life, there is hope. Where there is no life, there is no hope. Dead is a hopeless state. The fact that the Ephesian Christians, and thereby all of us, the fact that we were dead speaks to our need. We were not just sick in need of healing. We weren't just broken in need of fixing. We weren't just dirty in need of cleansing. No, we were dead. In need of resurrection. Let's rise on verse 2. Paul continues on. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world. We were, in effect, carried along by the current of the world. 
Think of a, a leaf or a piece of debris floating down the stream. It goes with the flow, right? It goes with the flow of the current. So too with all mankind. Think about how we operate as human beings. We, as much as we might like to think this is true, in so many ways in life, we do what everybody else is doing. If we see a crowd, we join it. We are slaves to trends. We're slaves to fashions. We're slaves to movements. Why do you dress the way that you do? Or why do you buy a particular kind of hand soap to put in your bathroom vanity? Probably because you either saw others using it, if you read an article about how this kind of soap is better, or you saw some kind of advertisement and were persuaded. It seems true. You're like, bro, we're really talking about hand soap this morning. It's a good illustration, though, of how we do what other people do, even in the trivial and mundane things of life. And so we go round and round and round this carousel of life. The point of what I'm saying, the point of what Paul is writing, is that the masses of which we are a part are like a flock of sheep, following along, not really even knowing why we're doing Put your eyes back to verse 2. Paul continues on after he writes, following the course of this world. He pins this, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So someone might ask, okay, if we are enslaved to the mind and the outlook of this world, who determines that? Who determines the mind and the outlook of this world? Answer, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is Satan, the ancient servant who is the devil, the god of this world, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians Fallen man in our natural state are enslaved to him. Satan and spiritual forces of darkness are at work in the fallen world that we live in. And they are at work in and amongst fallen man. Put your eyes on verse 3. Paul continues on. He's just written about how Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience. Then he says, among whom we all once live. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So Paul now pointedly says, all mankind. So here, that would include not only Gentiles, but also Jews. All humanity. We all once lived as sons of disobedience. How did we live? You can see it in the text. In the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, friends, we lived according to the cravings and the lusts of our fallen nature. Naturally, human beings are slaves to these things. We are slaves to our cravings and to our desires. As much as we might like to consider ourselves to be intellectuals, living according to reason or something admirable like that. Deep down, 
in our fallen state, apart from God's grace, we live according to desire. And we are governed by cravings. Human beings, naturally, in Adam, are creatures of passion and lust. We are creatures of anger and ambition. We are creatures of greed and covetousness. We like to talk a lot as human beings about autonomy, being a rule unto ourselves, governing ourselves. We like to talk about freedom and how we are free to do what we want to do. Brothers, sisters, friends, the scripture is quite clear that when we are born into this world, we are anything but free. We follow the course of the world. We are in bondage to Satan. And we are enslaved by the passions and the cravings of our fallen flesh. Put your eyes back on verse 3. Paul continues on. He says that we all were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath means that we are corrupt, not good. We are evil, not righteous. And we are deserving of God's righteous and good wrath against wickedness. Side note, I always like to insert this whenever we start talking about wrath. Because wrath to us sounds bad. God is wrathful against real evil. He is against sin because he's good. What kind of God would he be if he was okay with wickedness and evil and corruption? That would be a horrifying reality to have an all-sovereign, almighty God who is okay with evil. We continue on. By nature, Paul says, we were children of wrath. This is what we are by nature. It's in our essence. It's not something we become. It says, David writes in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is universal. Every man, every woman without exception, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, Romans 5, 12. Everybody's dying. Why? Because everybody is in a state and condition of sin. In Adam, all die, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. If you have your Bibles in front of you or you have a Bible app open, flip over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 10 to 18 just very briefly. Here Paul is going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to cite the Psalms, he's going to cite Proverbs, and even the Prophets, notably Isaiah, in describing the condition of every human being under the sun, whether Jew or Gentile. Paul says in Romans 3, 10 and following, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one, Paul, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. 
The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is what we were. That brings us to part two. Part one is what we were. Part two is simply the first two words of verse four, but God. But God. We're going to look at verses four to seven. Before we make any more progress through the text, put your eyes on the beginning of verse five. We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff that God has done. Unless we confuse the issue, these words matter. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead, we were all of the things that Paul just wrote about in verses 1 to 3. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked in them. We followed the course of the world. We followed Satan. We lived according to the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and our mind and were by nature children of wrath. We were all of those things. And God did what he did when we were still all of that. God did what he did when we were still all of that. That matters. Christianity is not about what we do for Jesus, but what he has done for us. Christianity is about what God has done for us in making us alive together with Christ. Christianity, with no shame and zero hesitation, heralds from the rooftops that salvation is of the Lord. That salvation belongs to God. That it is His work from beginning to end. We are people of faith. And more precisely, we are people who are trusting in Jesus Christ for everything that we could ever do. We are looking completely away from our sins. Away from not only our own sin, but away from any notions of our own righteousness, any notions of our own goodness. We are looking to Christ alone. We are not trusting in anything that we have done or might ever do. We are trusting in the works of Jesus Christ in our place. The lifeblood of Christianity is Christ and his works, not a system of our works. The lifeblood of Christianity is Christ and his work, not some kind of moral code. You know that, you understand that, that what makes Christianity unique in the scope of world religion is not its morality. Though I would contend that the moral standards of Christianity, God's law aimed at the heart, are the greatest standards of righteousness in the world. But what makes Christianity unique is not its morality, it is its message. It's the fact that it's news about something that's happened, that's over, that Christ did, that we trust. Put your eyes at the beginning of verse 4. But God. 
That's a wonderful conjunction right there. In the aftermath of all of that death and passions and lust and Satan and slavery and all of that, but God, praise be to his name. In two words, brothers and sisters, we have moved from sin to salvation. In two words. From sin to salvation. From man in his utter hopelessness to God in his almighty power and grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a great preacher in the 20th century in England, in the UK, I should say, said this, the gospel begins always where man ends. The gospel begins always where man ends. The gospel, brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us, the fact that he has saved his people, and that there's nothing left for us to do, we trust him, is the only hope that there is in this world. This is true because man's natural condition, our natural condition is so hopeless. You have to be able to accurately diagnose a disease in order to treat it. You have to be able to accurately diagnose a disease in order to cure it, certainly. You have to be able to accurately diagnose a problem in order to solve it. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can meet our need because only God understands the reality of our condition. Only the power and grace of God can rescue us from the sin, the slavery, and the death that we were all born into. But God. Put your eyes back on verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. This is who our God is, brothers and sisters. Amen. Somebody. He is merciful. The Lord, the Lord, a God, what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faith. This is who he is. Theologians of old used to talk about how God being merciful was his natural work, meaning it just flows out of his heart as easy as it is for us to breathe. God is merciful. He delights to show mercy to his children. Thank God that he deals mercifully with us. We are so prone to think in terms of what we deserve or what others deserve. This is the, the capital that we trade in, the way we speak, the way we think. And when we think and talk like that, we are using the language of justice. When we talk about fairness, we're using the language of justice. But we need to be careful when we start to talk like that, when we start to think like that. Because if we were ever to get fairness, or if we were ever to get justice, or if we were ever to get what we deserve, from God, it wouldn't be good. What we deserve in and of ourselves would be in condemnation because we're sinners. We have committed, as R.C. Sproul famously wrote, we have committed cosmic treason against the infinitely good and holy God who made us. We need to be careful in wanting justice from God. But mercy on the other hand, Mercy is not getting what we deserve. 
Mercy, by the way, is better than faith. I'm sure you've thought about that. Mercy is better than faith. Fair means wrath, condemnation, judgment because I'm a sinner and God is righteous. Mercy is better than fair and in Christ Jesus we get mercy. This is because Christ took our punishment. He took God's justice for us so that we might receive mercy. It's as we sing in the great hymn before the throne of God above. God the just is satisfied to look on him, Christ, and pardon me. It's not that God somehow just has suddenly forgotten about his holiness and righteousness and says, oh, overlook transgression and mercy. No. God in his righteousness and in his justice poured that justice out upon Christ so that we might receive mercy. In other words, friends, if you want fair, find another religion. The message of this book is that sinners get mercy. Sinners get grace. Sinners get forgiveness. Sinners get righteousness because of what Christ has done. Put your eyes back on verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, then this, because of the great love with which he loved us. So not only is God merciful, he is a loving God. God is love. And he is a God of covenant love toward his people. Steadfast love is how it's often rendered in the scriptures. Unchanging, unending, unceasing, unrelenting. Not dependent at all upon the object. Completely dependent upon God himself. Covenant steadfast love. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he did this. All right, question, serious question. Why did he love us? Why? Is it because we were loved? Is it because we were worthy? Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning verse 6, Moses writes to the people of Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's remarkable. But why did he do it? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. You were small and significant. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why did the Lord love them? He loved them because he loved them. The answer is found in him. The ground is found in him. The reason is found in him. He loved them because he loved them, and because he was keeping the promises that he had sworn to Israel's fathers. Well, why did he make those promises? It's a good question. Why did God make the promises that he made, for example, to Abraham? Was it because Abraham deserved them? Was it because Abraham was a good and upright man? Joshua 24, 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, 
Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring. Abram comes from a family of pagans, worshiping other gods. Why did he do it? Grace. Unmerited favor. Why did God give Israel the promised land? Why did he do that? Deuteronomy 9, verses 5 and following. Moses writes to the people, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, meaning the people of Canaan. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. They are wicked. They are his enemies. Okay. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. Because you are a stubborn people. God, in spite of them, blessed them. In spite of their stubbornness, in spite of their sin, gave them a land. So too with us. In spite of our sin, in spite of our stubbornness, God has saved us and has promised us a land, namely the new heavens and the new earth forever. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, continue on with me in verse 5. Even when we were dead, right, in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God, because of his mercy and because of his love with which he has loved us, by grace, not merit, has made us alive together with Christ. So much of the good news of Jesus and how we talk about salvation in the Christian life, you probably have realized this, it always comes back to this union with Christ thing. It's the fact that we are in him. We have been united to him by faith. He is our representative. We are his people. This union with Christ happens by the power of the Holy Spirit only. This union with Christ is not natural. It's supernatural. It isn't human. It's divine. Union with Christ and faith in Christ and the new birth through which faith comes is a miracle. We often will talk about the birth of our children being like a miracle. And I completely understand what we mean. But under God, through the natural workings of the way that he's made the world, the birth of our children and all of our births, frankly, are pretty explicable in natural terms. However, the spiritual birth, the new birth through which someone comes to faith in Christ is flat out miraculous. It is a resurrection. There was death, now there's life. How? It's because God, in grace and mercy and love, 
looks upon us in our deadness and our residence in this In dead men obey the voice of God. Just as when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb in John 11, the one who gave the command, Lazarus come out, gave him the life with which to obey him. The saints, the children of God, are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, verse In John chapter 3, Jesus has an interchange with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And he says these words to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus to Nicodemus says, don't marvel at this. This is not a human thing. This is the work of the Spirit of God. And through this miraculous work of the Spirit of God, we who were dead are made alive and are united to Christ Jesus by faith. We are Romans 6 language. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. We are baptized into his life, death, and resurrection. We are united to him in that way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 In him we become the righteousness of God. Because we are united to Christ, because we have been made alive together with Christ, Everything that is true of him is true of us. That is a mind blowing. If it can be said of Christ, it can be said of us in him. In Jesus, by faith, we have righteousness. It's not as though God is confused. It's not as though God looks at us and thinks that everything that we are doing is perfect. No, he looks at us and he sees in the place of our record, the record of Christ's perfect obedience. In Jesus, by faith, we have holiness. That's what we just say. Holiness is Christ in me. Everything that is Christ is now ours. In Christ, there is satisfaction for our sins. Christ has not only atoned for all the sins that we've ever committed, he has also satisfied the wrath of God against our sinful nature. In Christ, by faith, there is forgiveness. There is absolution, being absolved of guilt. That is a good word to struggling sinners this morning and every morning. Because we carry around with us this thing called our conscience. We are accused all the time by Satan the great accuser of the brethren. We know we're wrong. We know we sin. To know that because of Christ and my union with him by faith, I am forgiven is a big I am absolved of all guilt. I'm free. Praise God for that. In Christ by faith, I've been united to him. I've been baptized into his life, death, and resurrection, and now have been raised to walk in newness of life. I don't live like I used to live. Yeah, the internal war is real. Sure, I battle sin, 
But my life is different. I have a new hope. I have a new people. I have new joy. I have new peace that I never had. Sometimes I find myself doing things I don't want to do when I sin. Sometimes I find myself not doing the good things that I want to do. But at the end of the day, I look and I say, I am not what I once was. I'm different than I used to be. And that's God's work, not mine. Because of Christ. And because of the word of the Spirit in me. In Christ by faith, we have the promise and guarantee of bodily resurrection. Everyone in this room is perishing. We don't like to talk about that, but it's true. We are experts in denying reality when it makes us comfortable. In Christ, the last and greatest enemy, which is death, has been conquered. And one day we will all be resurrected from the grave. And like we thought about last week, there won't be fear. There won't be pain. There will be no more bad news. No more surprises. The promise and guarantee of an inheritance in the new heaven and new earth is ours, I promise. It already is ours. And one day we will take possession of it. It's certain. God will see it. Put your eyes on verse 7. Paul continues on. We have been raised up with Christ, we've seated with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The ground, the bottom of our salvation is God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. If you want to look underneath it, if you want to pull the curtain back, What's behind our salvation? What's underneath it? It's the love of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. And the goal of our salvation, according to Scripture, is both God's joy and God's glory. The goal of our salvation is God's joy and the display of His grace and His kindness toward us forever. So when we are resurrected, it's hard sometimes to imagine because our minds are fine. The track will be perfect. When we are resurrected, when the heavenly Jerusalem, as Revelation describes, comes down, the heavens literally come down to earth. When we are with God, when we see Christ as he is, when faith turns to sight, there will be no doubt as to how and why all of that is happening. There will be no doubt. There will be no confusion about why this is the case or how this came to be. God has done it. The Lamb slain has conquered and has ransomed the people. And when before the throne, I stand in him completely. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus made it all. All to him I know. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it. White as sin. We will never stop saying that. 
That will be the refrain of heaven. The Lamb who is slain is conquered, and he has ransomed the people from God. As we conclude our time together this morning, let's reflect for just a moment about the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this letter to the Some in the room may be familiar with his life, others may not be, but track with me, I trust we can, we can follow along enough together. So Paul, before he was a Christian, was known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jew, a Pharisee, and he was a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He saw them to be blasphemers, frankly worthy of imprisonment and death. As recorded in the book of Acts chapter 9, Saul was on his way to accost Christians in the church of Damascus when he was confronted on the road by the risen Christ. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That is the beginning of a tremendous transition in Paul's life. Some years after that event occurred, Paul wrote these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself to me. How in the world do you explain such a change? How? It's those two words that we rejoiced over this morning, but God. Paul says, I hated Christ. I hated it. I hated Christians. I hated the church. But now, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But God. Paul says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a rock star in that life. I had a righteousness according to the law that was unparalleled. Nobody could hang with me. But now, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, but God. That's Paul's testimony. I was going this way and doing this thing, but God. And here I am, not looking to my own righteousness, but looking to the righteousness of Christ by faith. I was going this way and doing this thing. I hated Christ. I hated the church. But, and now, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's Paul's testimony. And it's our testimony too. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, considering the things we have this morning, it only seems appropriate that we would thank you. We don't deserve anything good from you, and yet you have shown us extravagant love and grace and mercy. You have given us life when we were dead. We pray that you would work by your spirit to breathe life into our hearts that sometimes feel lifeless. We pray that you would use your word and the truth that we have considered this morning to stir us up for love and good works. We pray that you would continue to work in us by your spirit, continue to sanctify us and conform us to the image of Christ. We pray that you would sustain our faith in your son, that you would strengthen us and confirm us in the faith. We pray that you would use your word to do that. We pray that you would use your table to which we are about to come to do that. We pray for you to minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen.